0: Hi, listeners, it's Carter from the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we search for the real truth behind some of the most controversial happenings in history. Some of these events boil down to a matter of coincidence. Others are fraught with corruption, cover-ups, and powerful people with ulterior motives. People like the first director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, Kate and I are thrilled to bring you this six-part crossover from Conspiracy Theories and Dictators on the Life, Career, and Conspiracies of J. Edgar Hoover. For more of history's most questionable events, follow Conspiracy Theories free on Spotify. On February 9, 1958, 63-year-old J. Edgar Hoover made an important announcement. All of the proceeds for his new book, Masters of Deceit, were going to be donated to the FBI Recreational Association. The FBIRA was an organization created to promote athletic, social, and welfare activities for FBI employees.
1: This wasn't Hoover's first book. However, it was the one that was most dear to him because it was about America's decades-long fight against communism.
0: Hoover himself didn't actually write the book. Rather, a team of agents spent close to six months putting pen to paper in order to make it appear as if the FBI director was disclosing his battle plan against communism.
1: Another thing that no one knew at the time the FBIRA was really just a tax-exempt slush fund that Hoover used to launder money. Years later, Hoover brazenly admitted that he had made $71,000 off Masters of Deceit, worth more than half a million dollars today.
0: This wasn't a one-off. In both 1962 and 1969, Hoover published two more books and used the FBIRA to avoid paying taxes.
1: The most powerful law enforcement officer in the United States was nothing more than a common criminal.
0: Welcome to J. Edgar Hoover, a six part podcast special presented by Dictators and Conspiracy Theories. I'm your host, Carter. And I'm your host,
1: Kate. Over the course of this series, we're diving into the life, legacy, and notoriety of America's most well-known and possibly most hated FBI director.
0: You can find all episodes of Dictators, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
1: Today, we dive into Hoover's final standoff against wild Bill Donovan over control of foreign intelligence. We'll also explore how Hoover's fear of Soviet spies and communist infiltrators helped lead to the rise of McCarthyism.
0: Next time, we'll move to the 1960s and Hoover's war with the Kennedy brothers, and how, with the rise of the civil rights movement, Hoover used insidious methods to destroy activist leaders.
1: We'll have all that and more right after this.
0: J. Edgar Hoover gained unfettered power for the FBI during President Franklin D. Roosevelt's 12 years in office. By the time FDR died in 1945, Hoover had become one of the most powerful men in America.
1: Throughout the 1930s and 40s, Hoover never lost sight of his two missions in life, destroying communism and becoming America's sole intelligence gatherer.
0: Unfortunately for Hoover, he wasn't the only one aiming for the latter. His old nemesis, William Wild Bill Donovan, maneuvered his way into heading the Office of Strategic Services or OSS during World War II The OSS was the nation's independent wartime foreign intelligence agency. And by independent, we mean separate from the FBI.
1: As the war began winding down, FDR was ready to put Bill Donovan in charge of a peacetime foreign intelligence agency. However, with Harry Truman now in the White House, Hoover thought he could shift foreign intelligence power to the FBI.
0: FDR's body wasn't even cold before Hoover sent an emissary to the new president with a message. If there was anything Truman needed from Hoover, don't hesitate to ask. As vice president,
1: Truman just barely knew the extent of Hoover's power. But once he was sworn in and briefed, he rightly came to fear Hoover's reach.
0: So Hoover didn't get the response he hoped for. Truman wrote back, Anytime I need the services of the FBI, I will ask for it through my attorney general. The message was clear. Under Truman, Hoover's power would remain in check.
1: In a diary entry a month into taking office, Truman wrote, We want no Gestapo or secret police. The FBI is tending in that direction. They are dabbling in sex life scandals and plain blackmail. This must stop.
0: Truman named Tom Clark an oil lobbyist, the new attorney general. Later, he described Clark as his biggest mistake.
1: Hoover and Clark got along swimmingly. Clark made it clear to Hoover that he wouldn't actually oversee the FBI. According to author Kurt Gentry, Clark barely read through Hoover's memos and requests and basically rubber-stamped everything.
0: Hoover was thrilled. Like a kid with no supervision, he immediately grabbed for his favorite treat. If you can call wiretapping a treat.
1: In July of 1945, Clark wrote Truman a letter asking him to reauthorize the FBI's ability to use warrantless wiretaps. Clark pointed to FDR's authorization of such taps in 1940.
0: However, it was actually Hoover himself who wrote this letter, not Clark. The letter failed to mention that in 1940, FDR had limited the taps to only non-citizens.
1: Truman didn't notice that discrepancy. He agreed to renew the taps and to give Hoover permission to tap almost anyone he wanted.
0: But while the ability to spy on Americans was a big win for Hoover, the fight over foreign intelligence was still ahead.
1: Bill Donovan still wanted to turn the OSS into a peacetime intelligence gathering organization. To drum up support, he enacted a media blitz. He played into the success the OSS had during World War II, detailing the secret war his agents fought in the shadows.
0: Hoover's camp countered by leaking details about communists in the upper levels of the OSS's ranks. He even personally appealed to Truman, claiming that the FBI's work in Latin America proved its ability to handle intelligence gathering abroad.
1: Truman was all too aware of the ongoing feud between Hoover and Donovan, but he didn't need Hoover to tell him Donovan wasn't fit to lead an intel group. By now, most people in the intelligence community thought very little of Donovan. Not to mention, Donovan only met with the president once and didn't leave much of an impression.
0: So, in September of 1945, Truman fired Wild Bill Donovan and officially disbanded the OSS. To Hoover's great relief, he would never have to deal with Donovan again.
1: Hoover didn't waste any time. He immediately sent A.G. Clark a proposal for his International Espionage Division. The plan laid out a strategy where the FBI and military would handle espionage around the world and the State Department would analyze the data.
0: Little did he know, President Truman had no desire to give him that kind of power. Truman was planning to create an entirely separate foreign intelligence agency.
1: When Hoover caught wind of the plan, He was enraged. He sent disparaging letters to A.G. Clark, chastising the decision, and warning that it could ruin all the work the FBI had already done.
0: But the letter had no effect. A few days later, Truman signed an executive order that established what would later be named the Central Intelligence Agency. And J. Edgar Hoover would not be in charge of it.
1: Hoover, of course, retaliated. Not only did he spy on just about every CIA hire, but he also refused to help the agency during its early years. Whenever CIA directors requested FBI assistance, Hoover flatly refused.
0: Even pettier, when the time came to hand over control of Latin American and Caribbean espionage, Hoover had his men destroy everything at the field offices. The CIA had to start completely from scratch.
1: But gaining power wasn't Hoover's only motive for the secrecy. Even though the Nazis and Japan had been defeated, America was still at war, a cold war against the Soviet Union. As the dust settled on World War II, Hoover went after several Soviet spy networks in the United States. In at least one case, the FBI didn't fully understand the spy ring's depth or how many U.S. government agents may have been compromised.
0: But in the fall of 1945, a major break came. A Soviet cipher clerk named Igor Guzenko defected to the Canadians. Soon, the FBI received its own valuable information from Guzenko.
1: Guzenko revealed that until a few months prior, the Soviets had a spy in the upper echelons of the State Department.
0: Later that year, a Soviet courier turned informant named Elizabeth Bentley identified one possible spy by name, Alger Hiss.
1: Hiss was already on the FBI's radar. A career bureaucrat who worked in the State Department, Hiss was first associated with communist spy networks as early as 1939. But in the midst of the war, the accusations fell by the wayside. Hiss buddied up to the administrations of both FDR and Truman. And when the war ended, he participated in forming the United Nations.
0: By the time the evidence against him came to light, the statute of limitations was up. It was too late to charge him with espionage, but Hiss was eventually sentenced to five years in prison for perjury.
1: For J. Edgar Hoover, the Alger Hiss debacle wasn't something to celebrate, but to fear. Hiss had high rank and stature. His conviction was proof that the Soviets were capable of penetrating the top levels of the U.S. government.
0: And while Truman did eventually sign an executive order calling for loyalty investigations into federal employees, he did so apprehensively. In a letter, Truman wrote that the U.S. was, quote, "...perfectly safe so far as communism is concerned."
1: But if Truman wouldn't take communism seriously, then Hoover would make sure the next president did.
0: Coming up, Hoover medals in politics.
2: They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when mommy dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from ParCast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes a beloved actress who would do anything for her child, a jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge, plus a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this podcast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children, and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.
0: Now back to the story. At the start of the Cold War, President Harry Truman didn't feel that the threat of communism warranted giving the FBI more power. This put him at odds with J. Edgar Hoover, a dangerous enemy to have.
1: 1948 was an election year, and Truman's seat in the Oval Office was on the line. Throughout the general election, Hoover supplied Republican nominee Thomas Dewey's campaign with dirt on Truman and his associates to be leaked to the press.
0: But Hoover's efforts were to no avail. Truman won re-election, Hoover was so stunned that he refused to show up to work for over a week.
1: And the hits just kept on coming. That fall, intercepted Soviet cables unearthed something disturbing, a KGB agent within the Department of
0: Justice. Decoded cables described a KGB operative who, A, was a woman, B, worked in the New York DOJ office, and C, had recently been transferred to Washington, D.C.
1: This was enough for investigators to pinpoint one person, 28-year-old Judith Coplin.
0: Coplin worked in the foreign agent's registration. Essentially, she had complete access to the FBI's files on any suspected or confirmed Soviet agents.
1: Hoover's goal was to quietly fire Coplin before the situation became a public embarrassment. However, Copland presented an opportunity. Hoover decided to keep her under surveillance and see if he could capture her Soviet handler.
0: In January 1949, the FBI followed Copland to Manhattan's Washington Heights, where she met a man named Valentin Gubachev, a U.N. employee and possible KGB spy. After two months of continued but unfruitful surveillance the FBI decided to speed things up. They began feeding Copland bogus information to bait the Soviets.
1: On March 4,
0: 1949, Copland
1: arranged another meeting with Gubachev. When she arrived, the FBI was waiting for her.
0: When agents arrested Copland, they discovered that she was in possession of 28 FBI documents, including a fake memo that Hoover had written as bait.
1: Copland's trial was primed to be a major win for Hoover. But during proceedings, Copland's lawyers noticed something fishy in the prosecution's pile of evidence. Specifically, he believed that one of their alleged informants wasn't actually an informant, but an illegal wiretap.
0: During a hearing, the prosecution begrudgingly admitted that Copland's house was full of illegal bugs and taps. Not only that... The taps were still active and had picked up conversations between Copland and another attorney, a clear breach of attorney-client privilege.
1: Despite the revelations that the FBI clearly broke the law, Copland was convicted in March, 1950. However, that December, the U.S. Court of Appeals reversed her conviction. The court believed Copland was guilty of espionage but the use of illegal wiretaps and the fact that Copland was arrested without a warrant was enough to nullify on a technicality.
0: The Copland case was an embarrassment for Hoover. For over a decade, he had been able to illegally wiretap at will. Now he'd been exposed.
1: But Hoover refused to stop. Instead, he just buried the evidence. Moving forward, any intelligence collected from TAPS was kept in separate files to avoid discovery through subpoenas.
0: Alger Hiss and Judith Coplin were just two elements in the rise of Cold War fears. Abroad, China and North Korea both fell to communist control, and more alarmingly, the Soviets developed their own atomic bomb.
1: With each Soviet spy the FBI uncovered, Hoover's fear increased. If these agents could infiltrate government offices, who's to say they weren't everywhere?
0: But Hoover's fear wasn't just that spies were helping Moscow win the nascent Cold War. He also believed, once again, that there was a communist conspiracy to overthrow the US government. His goal was to take them all down before it happened.
1: For the most part, Hoover worked in the shadows. But on the public side, Congress helped his cause, and he returned the favor. In
0: 1938, the House of Representatives created the House un American Activities Committee, or HUAC. Its mission was to seek out political subversives in all facets of American society, regardless of political leaning. But at the end of World War II, HUAC almost exclusively turned its focus on communism and the committee made front-page news by going after Hollywood.
1: Throughout the late 1930s and mid-1940s, fear-mongers accused Hollywood of promoting communist propaganda. And when lot workers at Warner Brothers went on strike, some claimed it was instigated by the Communist Party.
0: In 1947, pressure mounted, and HUAC subpoenaed 41 Hollywood writers, directors, and producers. When they appeared before the committee, 10 of the witnesses refused to cooperate.
1: In response, Hollywood executives blacklisted them. And in subsequent years, that blacklist grew.
0: Hoover assisted HUAC as it scoured Hollywood. The FBI conducted break-ins at Communist Party offices in Los Angeles, then gave the committee names.
1: And HUAC wasn't the only congressional committee Hoover aided. In the Senate, FBI intel allowed the Internal Security Subcommittee to investigate both the U.N. and universities across America. Spying on diplomats and left-leaning professors and students became the norm.
0: But arguably, Hoover gave most of his time during this period to the junior senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy.
1: Hoover and McCarthy first met when McCarthy arrived in Washington in 1947. According to author Kurt Gentry, the two men quickly hit it off. By the following year, Hoover invited McCarthy to speak at the FBI Academy's graduation. However, it wasn't until 1950 that the two men solidified their bond as compatriots in the war on communism.
0: It all started in February of that year, when the senator spoke at the Ohio County Republican Women's Club in West Virginia. In the midst of his speech, seemingly out of nowhere, McCarthy claimed that he had a list of 205 communists working in the State Department. It shocked the room.
1: At another rally a few days later, McCarthy reiterated the claim. However, this time, the number was only 57. Regardless, his words made their way into the headlines, and a wave of hysteria crashed down.
0: Hoover sensed an opportunity. When McCarthy returned to Washington, D.C., Hoover told the senator that whatever he needed to back up his claims, the FBI would deliver. However, he did tell McCarthy to be less specific when throwing out numbers.
1: Right away, Hoover's deal received pushback from other FBI officials. For example, an aide named William Sullivan argued that they really had no evidence to support the senator's remarks.
0: Hoover didn't care. He charged on. Anything that so much as hinted at sympathy for communism made its way across McCarthy's desk.
1: For the next couple of years, McCarthy made baseless accusations that stoked paranoia, but resulted in little congressional action.
0: However, that changed in the fall of 1952. For the first time in 20 years, Republicans controlled Congress and the White House. Harry Truman was out, and Dwight D. Eisenhower was in the Oval Office.
1: Eisenhower and his Vice President Richard Nixon were hardline anti-communists. For the first time during the Cold War, Hoover had allies in the White House.
0: Right away, Ike, as he was called, gave Hoover his full vote of confidence and made it clear that the FBI director could do whatever he wanted to get his job done.
1: According to William Sullivan, Eisenhower blindly believed everything Hoover told him, never questioned a word. He may have been a great general, but he was a very gullible man.
0: And when Ike signed Executive Order 10,450 in May 1953, The FBI essentially had free reign to dig into the lives of federal employees. One former FBI special agent later recalled that, under the order, a federal employee's status depended on their association with, quote, communism, homosexuals, drunks, and other social aberrants who might be considered threats to the security of the USA. According to the special agent, Executive Order 10450 became their Bible.
1: Sexuality, for one, became an especially easy target. Many FBI officials were not only homophobic to start with, but they feared that Soviets could use sexuality as a means of blackmail.
0: This sparked an added layer of national paranoia, which became known as the Lavender Scare. Government employees had to hide their sexualities for fear of losing their jobs.
1: Senator Joseph McCarthy soon became chairman of the Senate Permanent Investigations Subcommittee, which meant he could now call investigations of his own.
0: An estimated 2,000 federal employees lost their jobs during these investigations. And more often than not, it was because McCarthy simply accused them of being a communist sympathizer.
1: Much of the basis for McCarthy's power came from Hoover. As journalist Tim Weiner notes, many of McCarthy's charges were drawn directly from the FBI's raw and uncorroborated reporting, including third-hand hearsay.
0: It isn't hyperbolic to say that Hoover and McCarthy were more than just colleagues, but true friends. Hoover said of McCarthy, I view him as a friend and believe he so views me.
1: And in a memo, McCarthy wrote to Hoover, No one need erect a monument to you. You have built your own monument in the form of the FBI. For the FBI is J. Edgar Hoover.
0: As mutually beneficial as it was for the two, however, their bromance quickly soured when McCarthy started taking things too far, even by Hoover's standards. In
1: 1953, McCarthy set his sights on the Army Signal Corps at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. In essence, McCarthy was going after the military, the pride and joy of President Eisenhower.
0: Before becoming president, Eisenhower was a five-star general. He led the Allies during World War II. Going after the military would be a political disaster, and Hoover knew it.
1: Hoover tried to rein McCarthy in, but it didn't work. In fact, McCarthy even announced that he was going to lump the CIA into his upcoming Army investigation.
0: Afraid of upsetting the president, Hoover ordered his men to seal the information pipeline to McCarthy. From now on, the senator would have to sling his attacks alone. The results were disastrous.
1: Coming up. McCarthy and Hoover face humiliation. Now back to the story. When McCarthyism went too far, J. Edgar Hoover turned his back on his friend. He ceased the flow of FBI information to the senator, but McCarthy charged ahead alone.
0: In the midst of McCarthy's crusade, the army in turn asked the Senate to investigate McCarthy, they alleged that his chief counsel was pressuring the Army to give special treatment to a former McCarthy staffer.
1: The dueling accusations were part of the Army McCarthy hearings. Broadcast on national television, the American people saw just how much of a bully Joseph McCarthy truly was. Not to mention, most of his attacks were without evidence.
0: Things came to a head on June 9, 1954 when the Army's lawyer, Joe Welsh, delivered the now-famous line, have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last, have you left no sense of decency.
1: The televised moment caught like wildfire and became McCarthy's undoing. In December of that year, the Senate voted to censure McCarthy. The press soon refused to give him the time of day, and J. Edgar Hoover wouldn't return his calls. Ostracized, Joseph McCarthy died of liver failure in May 1957 after years of heavy drinking.
0: Miraculously, Hoover was unscathed by his association with McCarthy. In retrospect, this is ironic, since one could argue that there wouldn't have been McCarthyism had it not been for Hoover. In fact,
1: McCarthy's downfall ultimately helped Hoover resume his role as America's number one communist hunter. But instead of taking McCarthy's place before cameras, Hoover returned to the shadows.
0: As usual, Hoover focused nearly all of his energy scouring for communists. In doing so, he neglected and enabled an actual criminal threat, the mafia.
1: Remember, Gangsters made Hoover's career. The FBI's mission to take down Depression-era gangsters like John Dillinger and Charles Pretty Boy Floyd solidified Hoover's place as the head of the FBI.
0: But you'll also recall that Hoover took his foot off the gas when it came to the self-described war on crime. Once he was able to shift the spotlight back onto communism in the late 1930s, organized crime kept doing its thing.
1: Hoover hadn't just turned a blind eye to the Mafia. He flat out pretended it didn't exist. He described the idea of a nationwide syndicate as baloney.
0: There are a number of theories as to why he did this. One of the more nefarious theories was that Hoover and Frank Costello, one of the most powerful mobsters of the era, had an agreement. Allegedly, the two men met on a regular basis to divvy up turf.
1: The most salacious theory, though, was that the Mafia had blackmail on Hoover. For years, rumors had circulated that the FBI director was gay. Speculation arose that the Mafia had proof of such rumors, so Hoover simply let them carry on as they pleased.
0: But most likely, there were two simple reasons for Hoover's nonchalance toward organized crime. One was his laser focus on communism— Another was that, according to Hoover, racketeering was a state or local offense.
1: But in the fall of 1957, Hoover was forced to admit the mafia was anything but baloney.
0: In mid-November, New York State Trooper Edgar Croswell caught wind of something odd. A large amount of motel reservations were being made in Apple Lake in New York, all in the same name. Joseph Barbara Sr. Barbara was a soda distributor with a long rap sheet.
1: Suspicious, Croswell kept Barbara's nearby estate under surveillance. Soon, he watched a caravan of limos arrive, most of them with out-of-state license plates.
0: On November 14th, New York state troopers set up a roadblock near Barbara's estate. But while they were lying in wait, a delivery man passed by on his way to the Barbara house. When the delivery man arrived, he told the gangsters about the surrounding police. Then the seemingly quiet estate erupted into chaos.
1: Over 50 mobsters in expensive suits fled the house. Some managed to escape on foot into the woods, but the vast majority tried to escape by car and were promptly snatched up at the roadblock more than 60 people were apprehended. Among the major mafia players at the meeting were Vito Genovese, Joseph Bonanno, Carmine Galante, Thomas Lucchese, and Santo Traficante Jr.
0: Hoover learned of the incident the following day. Apparently, he had no clue who any of those men were or why they were gathered in a random town in New York. For a man who fancied himself the nation's top cop... To be unaware of the country's leading criminals wasn't a great look.
1: Right away, Hoover was under fire. The press inundated him with questions. And perhaps worse, he faced demands from a cocky young lawyer named Robert F. Kennedy.
0: Kennedy was the chief counsel for the McClellan Committee, a Senate investigative committee that looked into racketeering and corruption among labor unions.
1: According to Kurt Gentry, Kennedy barged into Hoover's office unannounced and demanded all of the files the FBI had on the gangsters at the Appalachian estate. Unfortunately for Kennedy, Hoover had nothing.
0: Within days, the Appalachian meeting, as it became known, escalated into the worst PR disaster Hoover had ever dealt with. It proved just how wrong he'd been about the mafia.
1: With the Bureau's reputation on the line, Hoover had to do something. William Sullivan, head of the FBI's research and analysis, suggested that the best agents be pulled off their cases and begin a study on the mafia. Hoover liked the idea. Over the next year, the RNA created a two-volume monograph detailing the history of the mafia,
0: both in Italy and the US. And while this study was underway, Hoover put boots on the ground. He created the so-called Top Hoodlum program, which required FBI offices in major cities to identify and investigate the top 10 local gangsters.
1: In some cities, this resulted in nothing. But in Chicago, a city already well-known for its criminal underworld, the program opened the floodgates.
0: FBI agents quickly discovered that the Chicago mobsters generally frequented two places, the Armory Lounge and a tailor shop on North Michigan Avenue. With Hoover's approval, agents managed to bug both places.
1: The bugs revealed a lot. The FBI heard the gangsters name politicians in their back pockets and discuss robberies and murders they'd committed.
0: This information gave the FBI leverage to bug mob hangouts in cities across the nation. In doing so, the Bureau not only began to build evidence against the mafia, but they were also able to solve numerous cold cases.
1: The bugs also yielded an added benefit for Hoover. Since gangsters name-dropped politicians, in the years to come, Hoover managed to end the careers of his political enemies with mob ties, such as New Jersey Representative Cornelius Gallagher. It's even been said that Hoover blackmailed future presidents into keeping him as the director of the FBI.
0: Naturally, Hoover didn't limit his surveillance to organized crime. He used the same tactics to stoke fear and distrust among left-wing activists.
1: In 1956, the FBI created the Counterintelligence Program or COINTELPRO. The program consisted of a series of projects that targeted US political organizations.
0: The plan for COINTELPRO was simple. Gather intelligence on targets, then sow the seeds of public distrust.
1: Agents planted false news stories about their targets and delivered fake correspondence to activists' associates and families to stir the pot. The FBI even asked the IRS to conduct selective audits on their targets.
0: Hoover's first targets were, of course, communists. In August of that year, COINTELPRO began its first operation to disrupt the Communist Party USA. The grand irony, however, was that by this time, the party was all but dead.
1: Between McCarthyism, party infighting, and various prosecutions, the party had around 5,000 active members. Of that number, as many as 1,500 were FBI informants.
0: Within a year, the director was pleased with the success of COINTELPRO. In 1958, he claimed that he had seen tangible accomplishments— disillusion and defection among CPUSA members, and increased factionalism at all levels.
1: So he grew the program into a beast of unmeasured proportions. Its targets expanded beyond just communists and union organizers to include all of Hoover's adversaries.
0: Moving into the 1960s, he set his sights on black activists fighting for civil rights. Hoover zeroed in on Fred Hampton and Martin Luther King, Jr. Thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll look at how Hoover used COINTELPRO to target the civil rights movement.
1: Among the many sources we used, we found Kurt Gentry's J. Edgar Hoover, The Man and the Secrets, and Tim Weiner's Enemies, A History of the FBI, especially useful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Dictators, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Dictators are Spotify originals from ParCast executive producers include max and ron cutler sound design by anthony Valsik with production assistance by ron shapiro trent williamson carly madden and bruce Katovich. this special episode of conspiracy theories and dictators was written by joe guerra with writing assistance by sarah Batchelor and kate gallagher fact checking by bennett logan and research by brian petrus This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Carter Roy.
2: For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this podcast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.